the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. On February 13, 2017, Two teenagers were killed while enjoying a day off from school. The case went unsolved for years until an arrest was finally made. Today's guest broadcast journalist Susan Hendricks investigated that double homicide that shook the small community of Delphi, Indiana. Over the years, Susan has fostered deep connections with those united in the pursuit of justice for Abby and Libby. She joins us today to talk about the case and to discuss ways families and communities can cope with grief and move forward after tragedy. Susan has anchored HLN's live news show, Weekend Express, and has delivered news updates on Anderson Cooper's AC360. She's the author of the book, Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, it's so good to be on. Thanks for having me. So, Susan, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the story, tell us what happened on February 13th, 2017 in Delphi, Indiana. Well, Joan, it was a makeup school day, a day off from school in Delphi, and both Abby and Libby um, were together the night before, spending the night at Libby's house, and decided that morning, hey, why don't we go to Monon High Bridge? We have the day off. It was abnormally warm for that time of year. Normally, it's about, I would say, in the teens, and it was in the uh, 40s or low 50s. So they decided to do that. They asked Kelsey, Libby's sister, if she would drop them off. And in the past, she said to me, in the past couple times that they had asked that Libby had asked for her to drive them somewhere or Libby she said she couldn't she was too busy she had a job she felt guilty as an older sister and thought okay I'll do it I'll drop them off I should I should be a better sister and she dropped them off and that was the last time she ever saw them Abby and Libby went down the trail reaching the Monon High Bridge um, which is an abandoned railroad bridge 63 feet high but it's somewhere that kids like to go and uh, prom pictures were even taken down there for some kids, and it it was outdoors. So Libby's grandmother, Becky, thought, oh, they're away from their devices, fresh air, why not? No one thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Libby took a Snapchat picture of Abby on the bridge. We've all seen that image. And uh, we don't really know what happened afterward. We do know their bodies were discovered the next day. We also know that Libby hit record on her cell phone, maybe thinking that the man coming towards them on the bridge seemed a little off, a little creepy, hit record. We do hear his voice. We see his walk. And he said, guys, down the hill. So that's what authorities had to go on. This man on the bridge, evidence from Libby's phone, and the investigation took so many twists and turns, and uh, no one was arrested for close to six years. And so, you know, here are just two young girls doing what we've all done and our children have done many times before. Can you tell us a little bit about the town? What type of town was it? It's it's one of those small Pleasantville-type towns mm-hmm. that you maybe hear of, depending on where you grew up, but rarely see. Such a small town, under 3,000 people, um, vast open land, farmland, really just a quaint 
beautiful town. So it's you could picture it, but when you really go there and see it, it's a feeling of a, a tight community. Well, and this is a horrific tragedy to begin with, but when it occurs in a place that you really don't expect something like this to occur, I would imagine it just rocked everyone to the core. It really did, considering uh, that authorities thought from the start, and I agreed with them when I saw the bridge, I understood, because at first there was speculation and thoughts from people who aren't from Delphi that maybe it was a trucker that was passing through, if you will, and and got out and, and went down there and did something to the girls. But when you walk down the trails and you make it to the bridge, you realize just how difficult it is to get to the bridge and how it's almost hidden. So authorities, after investigating a bit, said, we believe this person is a local and we believe he's from here. So considering it's under 3,000 people, let's say 2,900, cut that in half, considering it's a male. And that's when everyone thought, who do we trust? Mm -hmm. Could it be that person? Could it be this person? And it changed, I believe, the feeling of the town. Did you begin by covering this story for work? And, And then when did this become personal for you? I did. We covered it on the set. I started as a reporter in California, originally being from New Jersey, and uh, studied in school journalism at Arizona State, then started in California, uh, eventually making my way to Atlanta at CNN. And so I started in the field as a reporter, spent years doing that. Then on the set, you, you feel like you're reporting at times, depending on the breaking news of the interviews. But when you're really there in a place, it's much different, as you know. So being on the set, I remember the story breaking. I remember Abby and Libby were missing. Then I remember on February 14th, the day their bodies were discovered, covering that from the set, it being breaking news, and doing an interview from the set um, with Ron Logan. Uh, His property, the girls' bodies were found on his property. So I remember that. A couple days later, I remember when it was released, um, Libby's recording and hearing his voice saying, guys down the hill and seeing or at that time, I'm sorry, it was just down the hill. The guys, authorities released that in 2019. So 2017, down the hill, and then seeing an image of the guy and and wondering, what did those girls go through? Mm -hmm. And that's when it became personal, though, my first time visiting Delphi, about a year and a half later. Susan, did they have any serious suspects right after the murder, or did it take some time for them to hone in on a person of interest? The short answer is we don't know, and that's by design, because the authorities from the start, I remember um, interviewing Sheriff Cope Lesenby, interviewing Sergeant Kim Riley, and when I did, I walked down this hallway and seeing a sign that said, watch what you say, the media could be listening, or something to that effect, meaning everything was kept close, Mm -hmm. and the reasoning being, um, I interviewed Superintendent Doug Carter several times saying, look, this could hinder the investigation. And it was understood. It really was considering everything they had, the evidence they had that they didn't want to get out. And I remember Detective Holman telling me, look, Susan, we don't want false confessions here. So we want to keep close to us what only the killer would know. Well, they also said, look, we need the public's help. Please call into the tip line. It was constant and consistent at every press conference. Please call the number. We need your help. Abby and Libby need your help. Please call in. So I believe in hindsight, the public took personal interest, of course, in this. And then they felt that they weren't getting similar information back. Like, okay, we called in. We're helping. What can you tell us? And the media, too. Um, Frankly, the media wanted more information because it became frustrating. And the families as well. But the families were working close and continue to work close with law enforcement. But they would never say if there was a suspect. They never really officially named anyone. And we're talking more than five years as a suspect. They have said, um, and the media scrutiny was tough. I, I do feel bad for law enforcement who were at the center of this, like Sheriff Tope Lesenby, who who said, look, oh, yes, if the media, let's say there was a name and it looked similar to sketch one or sketch two, and that person was arrested for another crime, it came up, 
someone from the media would ask Sheriff Tobe Legenby, is this connected, myself included? And he would say something to the effect of, it's someone, of course, we're looking into. Well, then that became the headline the next day. Then mm-hmm. he completely shut everyone out and stopped talking at all because he never said suspect. Um, and then there was speculation. And the families were hurt by this because they thought, look, we don't want the media to put up a picture of this guy, let's say, who was arrested for something else. And then if you're the public just walk, happening to see that um, either on your phone, on TV, and thinking that it's solved, and then you stopped looking. So the families didn't want the public to believe that it was solved when it wasn't. Susan, when we hear of a case like this, obviously our hearts break and, and we can feel the pain to a certain extent. And then we see these mass shootings and all these horrific tragedies that are going on in the world around us. And we feel it for a moment. But I don't think we really understand the pain that a community and, and these family members feel. So you were in the middle of all of this. Can you describe for us what it's like to be in the middle of that type of pain? Well, I believe I got very good at compartmentalizing, um, being a reporter, being on the set, and it's fairly easy to do. It doesn't mean you don't care or you're not invested. It means that the next news cycle comes in fast and you compartmentalize. Okay, this is the story. What's coming up next? Producers are in your ear. It's constantly moving and evolving from day to day, even the most horrific stories. But when you're there, and you meet the families and you get to know them on a different level, a level of being very comfortable in front of them and hearing stories about Libby and how she was funny and how she would joke and seeing Abby's cat that she loved in the house that she lived in. It's very, it's, it's very different and it's hard to compartmentalize and separate yourself, even though it's not about me. So I never wanted to express how sad I was. I wanted to become friendly with the families and get to know them, and I did, but it really had a, a deep, lasting effect on me to this day that it has. Watching these family members, what have you learned about resilience? How do these people move forward? There's some words that are overused, inspirational, resilient, but both of those terms apply to both families, Abby and Libby's. They really have no other choice, of course, when you're in a situation like this. But the way they handled it and dealing with the constant media and towards the center of this with certain armchair detective scrutiny, just, I mean, considering what they went through, also the lack of information that they were getting um, and the thought that this could happen again. That's what they said was their biggest fear, that another family would go through this as the days, weeks, months, and years went on and no one was in custody. But at times I would be sitting with the families and talking to them and uh, thinking if if they are getting through this enough to do interview after interview and to miss Abby and Libby to quiet times, Mike Patty told me Libby's grandfather are the most difficult, that he'd wake up in the mornings, walk by her picture and say good morning to her every morning. But her laughter was gone. The house was empty. And to know that they went through that, it's just they are resilient and inspirational. Listening to the story, this is the worst of the worst that you can experience as a parent or a grandparent. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I know that at various, uh, we've been on stages together speaking at uh, CrimeCon for several years And there are questions and statements from the audience. And there are people there. It's really a close-knit community. Before I knew what it was, I I looked into it and thought, oh, this, the family wanted me to host them on stage. And I did. And wow, what a community that um, Kevin Balfe has built there. Because there are people who truly know what they're going through. We can think we may know or maybe someone close to us has passed away or we think we know someone who something similar has happened to but no one really understands what they're going through unless they've been through it themselves so I believe that they have found connections through that and I remember Diane Abby's grandmother saying to me you know it's just a look that someone can give you and if your eyes connect and you realize okay they're in this club that no one wants to be a part of 
that no one wants to be in. But once you are, you really understand what the other one's going through. So an arrest has been made, and I know there's a trial date. I believe it's for January 24. What can you tell us about the suspect? Do they have a motivation for it? And I do believe that there was a confession on a phone call from jail. Yes, Richard Allen is his name. Uh, Court documents were released. There was a hearing in June where um, it was heard on a recorded jail phone call or prison phone call with his wife when the the hearing occurred and then about two weeks later the judge released documents where we were able to look through those documents and see that in fact it was his wife that he said this to um, several different times and she ended the call abruptly is what the documents stated and also his mother I believe the document said as well well the defense team is saying look it's because his health and mind is deteriorating because of where he's being held. This is inhumane. He should be moved. Well, they had a hearing on that. The judge eventually decided, no, that's where he he is staying. The warden got on the stand and said, no, he is safe here. He does have a change of clothes. He's not treated any worse than he would at another uh, jail or prison. Uh, but what authorities do know, what we have learned since the arrest, is that he did have no priors. He, of course, was not in the CODIS system, meaning linking him to DNA. And he has a wife and a daughter, a grown daughter who's married. And uh, he worked at CVS at the time of the arrest. Mm -hmm. But nothing that would make him stand out. And looking back, that press conference, it was April 22nd, 2019, when uh, Superintendent Carter said, we believe you're hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he was right. He was. So this was just a member of the community. It could have been anyone. It really could have been anyone, and that's what the family felt during that almost six-year time period in that small town, looking around. And even uh, Tara, Libby's aunt, said to me, look, even when we're out of state, let's say we leave Indiana for work and we look over, we're at a stoplight. She says she's looked over and saw someone that maybe looks like the sketch, and she started to not trust really anyone, not just in Delphi, but outside of Delphi in different parts of Indiana and different parts of the country because they didn't know where he had come from. He could be from anywhere. So they wanted um, to keep that open to the public, meaning he could be from Delphi. He could not be from Delphi. And sure enough, he was only a mile or two away from the bridge, his house. Are there any theories floating around as to why he may have committed this crime? No, and I, I always think... With being a journalist, as you know, who, what, when, where, why. Mm -hmm. And I always say through the years, I don't think we ever get the answer we're looking for with why. And I know motivation is a factor, can be a factor once the court process comes up and, and how the case is tried. But why, I don't know. I spoke to Paul Holes um, for a while on this case. And what he said, based on his experience being part of solving the Golden State Killer, and his understanding and his experience, he stated that someone like this could have a fantasy for so many years, could have this fantasy in his head that that's what he wanted to do. And living so close to the bridge, and again, innocent until proven guilty, he is Richard Allen. But if he did do it, was he down there? Was he, in a sense, in waiting to see when, quote unquote, the perfect time would be for him to do what he's been fantasizing about for so many years? Because now... To my understanding, he's about 50. Back then, 2017, he'd be 44 years old. It's hard to believe that someone would wake up, a father, a husband, 44 years old, and decide to murder, brutally murder, two young girls. Right. Did he do it before the question? That's what I and keep thinking. I'm wondering the same thing. Yeah. If, you know, what they'll turn up in this investigation once they look at him seriously or what they already know. Right. And what, what finally led to the arrest? We do know that there was a quote-unquote clerical error because Richard Allen, soon after the murders, came forward, spoke to an officer in a parking lot and said, hey, I was down there at the bridge. Um, I didn't see the girls, but I was there, and and here's my name and what have you. So the officer wrote down the information, and then we never heard of that again. But I do remember Superintendent Doug Carter always saying Look, we're gonna we're never giving up. This isn't a cold case. If it doesn't lead to anything, we start over from the beginning. So I'm wondering, did they find that file 
was it in a, a filing cabinet? Was it on the computer? What led to that? Did someone call in a tip? Was it someone who called in, maybe a family member? I'm speculating here. But what finally led to the arrest? Because there were, were names being tossed around and, and, and theories, but never Richard Allen. He seemed to come out of nowhere. What was it like for the family members when they made the arrest? Ooh, I remember what they thought it would be like, at least Becky Patty saying, I'll be screaming from the rooftop, Susan. I'll come to Atlanta and say, we got him. Because for years, that's what they focused on. And Becky would post on Facebook, today is the day, knowing that one day that would be true. So both families had a mission, hand out the flyers uh, to interviews as, as many as they they wanted to or felt comfortable doing. Abby and Libby's family felt differently. Abby's family didn't feel as comfortable. They did the interviews, but Libby's family just dealt with it differently, as you see in, in crimes that we cover. Each family has, um, it's their prerogative to do as much or as little media as they want. But they work so hard, both families, with law enforcement to find the killer. And finally, when there was an arrest, because before this, there was names kind of thrown out there, never an official suspect, but absolutely, of course, never anyone charged with the murders of Abby and Libby. So once that did happen, I called Becky. She was at a wedding um, and walked down the hall, called me back and said, I can't believe this. This is, uh, it was a, uh, from what I read in her voice, a combination of excitement, but shock almost that finally, close to six years in, that someone is in custody. And then in the days following, I spoke to Becky and she said, I don't really know what my purpose is anymore. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's when grief really started to set in. Of course, there was grief and of course there was mourning, but maybe the mission um, was the focus for close to six years. And then when someone's in custody, maybe the emotion shifted to now what? Right. There's a diversion of attention. You you feel the pain, but there's a there's like you said, there's a mission. And now they they sit in the quiet. And and, it, you know, we have this thought of we always say we want to get closure. I'm not really sure there is such a thing as closure. But I often think that when you're in that type of situation, you think when we when we get the suspect and he or she is arrested and we'll put an end to this. But I actually think that's when it begins. Yeah, absolutely. I used to use that term and say closure, but I've since learned it. It's maybe closure for the media on that case, but it's never closure for the families. And just like you said, I believe that's when it begins because the, they no longer, the emptiness is still there. Libby won't be home. Abby won't be home. They won't hear their laughter or hear their voices. And I remember Becky saying, I don't really know what justice Susan looks like to others, but this is justice for the families and, and justice that this doesn't happen again. Um, but not justice for Abby and Libby because they'll never be brought back. Susan, from what you've learned from being a part of all of this, when someone goes through such a horrific experience, what can community members or other people do to help out? I've always wondered that, too, um, with grief and, and help and, and ways you can help. I know there's the Abby and Libby Memorial Park that it started as a thought. Mike Patty was telling me a thought of maybe, you know, an amphitheater, a softball field, and it turned into this beautiful uh, park with an amphitheater, with a softball field, a place for other kids to be, and uh I remember hearing Abby's mom say, oh, Abby would have loved the amphitheater. That is so cool. That So they work together as a unit, both families, volunteers, you name it, coming in to help build this. There were pavers that you can buy and you could still buy. So I think it, donations help if you're closer to the families, if you know them. Maybe a post on Facebook, I'm thinking of you just to reach out. Um I, in grief and, and talking to these families and, and learning more about it, sometimes people say, I've said it too, is there anything I can do? And I think that kind of shifts the, the, to the family, something that else they have to do is to answer your question. I think if the closer you are to them, maybe just being there and sitting next to them. The book is Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Susan, if our listeners would like to get more information about you and your work, where can they go? Um, the best way, I think, is to follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, 
they can reach out to me too and message me as well. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Joan. It's a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. cancer diagnosis can be scary. It's easy to get caught up in the cycle of fear and anxiety. Hypnosis creates a powerful mind that promotes healing. At Metro Hypnosis Center, we specialize in navigating the cancer journey in person or online by providing custom audio scripts, group healing circles, one-on-one sessions, and other programs all designed to support and empower you. To learn more, visit MetroHypnosisCenter.com or call 201-477-0265. Hypnosis is a natural complement to medical treatment plan and not meant to replace it. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole, an oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed. Then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. 
Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. of AM 970 The Answer on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. We're all going to get older. There's nothing we can do about that. But did you know that you also have a biological age, which scientists can measure by assessing how your genes are expressed through epigenetics? According to today's guest, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, exciting new research shows that your biological age can actually move in reverse. Dr. Fitzgerald shares a diet and lifestyle plan that shows you how to influence your epigenetics for a younger you. She is the author of the book, Younger You, Reverse Your Bio-Age, and live longer, better. Welcome, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to be with you today. So, doctor, we're going to get older. That's a fact. Many of us may not like it, but it is inevitable. But you say that even though we're aging chronologically, we can reverse aging biologically. What does that mean? Yeah, so chronological aging, can't do anything about it, number of birthdays we've had, But how fast we're aging physiologically is something that, A, we can measure reliably, and B, emerging research, including my study, suggests that we can slow it down or even reverse it. So it's a very, very exciting time in science and medicine. How much of a reverse are we able to achieve? So, for example, if you're 55, what can you actually do biologically in reverse? Like, where can we go? What's, what's a reasonable expectation? Our study demonstrated that an eight-week diet and lifestyle program reversed biological age in the participants by over three years. So eight weeks, we did a, a reversal of over three years as compared to the control group. Uh, there, there are a handful of other studies using different interventions over longer periods of time. So there was a a, a trial out of Europe using a year-long Mediterranean diet uh, that they supplied the participants, and there was a very modest biological age reversal in women, in Polish women. So it was Italian and Poles in this particular study, and so they showed a little bit of a difference in Polish women, but not in men. I mean, it was sort of interesting, their findings. Um, And then there was another year-long study where they used growth hormone injections and metformin, uh, the supplement DHEA, and uh, vitamin D. And that study showed about a two-year age, biological age reversal, actually maybe two and a half, and that was a year-long study. The reality is we're just starting to figure this out. There was actually one other trial that was 16 weeks looking at obese, vitamin D deficient African-Americans. And when they gave them for the, the group that was re- given 4,000 IU of vitamin D had a biological age reversal of 1.85. Uh, and that was over 16 weeks. So I think our results at this point in time are certainly the most impressive, the shortest period and, and, and pretty significant biological age reversal. Um, and the only randomized control study Uh, But we're just sticking our toe in this pond. So, Joan, it's a really exciting time. And, you know, this time next year, you know, maybe you'll be talking to me again. And, you know, we're we're embarking on a a new study now. And we're we're just going to continue to be reporting. Dr. Fitzgerald, what I think is so exciting about this is that many of us, as we age, we tend to think, you know, I've done all this damage over the years. I, I haven't eaten properly and I haven't exercised the way I should. And we tend to think that it's too late to do anything about that. But really what you're showing is it's never too late to reverse what we've done over the course of our lifetime. Yeah, that's right. And arguably it's essential. It's so important. Yes, we do not want to give up. So our study looked at middle-aged 
uh, men. They were between 50 and 72. So middle-aged, and we were able to do significant biological age reversal. I, I mean, no question, we all want to step in wherever we are in this journey and think about biological age and optimizing it. And I also want to say that the older we are, there's some research suggesting the more bang for our buck we'll get in biological age reversal. There's one really cool study looking at exercise, and we get more you know, benefit as far as our gene expression goes, which is how we measure biological age, than younger people. So definitely no time like the present to start, regardless of who we are, regardless of our health history. You know, we can all jump in and, and participate on this journey. And, and I think we all really need to. In fact, one thing that I'll say, and then I'll, I'll stop, is that we, so we're looking at gene expression to measure biological age. Once upon a time, we thought that our destiny was written in our genes and there was nothing that we could do about it. But science has tipped that paradigm on its head. We now know that gene expression is influenced potently by how we live our lives, what we're eating, uh, what we're doing, what we're thinking, feeling, etc. So, in fact, we know today that we have a huge say over the quality of our health span the, and the duration of our lifespan. And, you know, we're talking about age reversal, but really what we're saying is that we have the ability through what you teach to prevent and even reverse disease. And, and that's really where it comes into play, like you're saying with epigenetics. So many of us, like, for example, my father passed away of cancer, my mom of heart disease. So those are two things where I could very easily say, I'm predisposed to cancer and heart disease. But what I've learned through the science of epigenetics is that I do have a say to a certain point in, in how this plays out in my own life. And we all do. You have a big say, bigger than you realize. Yes. So I want to back up and say biological age, so how fast we're physically aging, is the biggest risk factor for these chronic diseases, the heart disease and cancer, you know, that your parents experience. So we can think about a couple things. We can think about focusing on biological age and improving the aging journey, and that will, by extension, reduce risk for these, you know, these very ubiquitous chronic illnesses. And, you know... As we do this, we are going to shift gene expression towards a favorable, more anti-inflammatory, uh, more anti-cancer, more antioxidant detox, et cetera. We're going to be shifting our gene expression to kind of support um, optimal health as well. And I want to really emphasize the positive message of, of what you're saying, because, you know, especially coming off of this pandemic where we've all felt so helpless, what you're saying is that we have so much power and control over our health when we pay attention to the things we eat and the, the way we live, our thoughts and so forth. Yes. These, you know, these daily habits, these daily choices are far more impactful than we realized. And I think that's the promise and the responsibility of this new era, you know, of the, you know, of being able to look at our gene expression, you know, the science of epigenetics. There is some responsibility here. We can't say uh, it's all in our genes, you know, that we have no responsibility around the outcome. Or, I mean, we can say that, but it's, it's not true. In fact, we have a great deal to, to say. We have a big role to play in health outcomes. Doctor, we're such a stressed out society. How does stress impact the way we age? Yeah, so we're also, we're a stressed out society and we're a society that's aging faster than other, you know, similarly developed society. So I, I suppose that's no great surprise, right? We tend to do everything faster. <laughs> um, stress, so my read on the literature as far as gene expression and and. Uh, biological age goes is that stress is a potent promoter of aging, uh, gasoline on the fire of aging. Um, the biological age clock that we used in our study, so the pattern of gene expression that we used in our study, a full 25% of it was dedicated to uh, stress responses. 
so genes that are responsive to glucocorticoids or cortisol, the stress hormone, a full 25%. There was no other contributing factor as potent as stress, you know, in my read on, on this clock. We have to take our stress experience very seriously. A lot of us say, oh, I'm so stressed out. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I have to work. I have to do this and da 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 and the kids and, you know, there's not enough money. And, you know, there's a, a litany. We're almost powerless over this stress experience. But, you know, all of us can shift it. We can take a minute, two minutes to just turn the volume down. And I think if we understand how essential it is um, that we can do that. So we know that stress drives aging forward. But there's also really cool science showing that meditation, Tai Chi, yoga, you know, really healthy practices reverse biological aging. And it doesn't, we don't have to be experienced. We don't have to go live in the monastery in the mountains. Just one episode of meditation in an, in an inexperienced practitioner has favorable changes on gene expression. And so if we keep doing it, it, it can contribute to a reduction in biological age. Has anyone studied the way our children are aging? We have a generation of kids who are more obese than ever before. They're not as active. You know, they, they're experiencing diabetes, high blood pressure, things that you don't yeah. normally find in children. You know, what's happening to them? Yeah. I, I worry about them in the future. Yeah. So there's interesting science here. In fact, that has been looked at. And yes, it is a pro-aging phenomenon and an appropriately pro-aging phenomena. Um, our kids, so we're supposed to age fast when we're little, you know, when we're babies or, you know, our children age fast. I mean, remember back to your kids when they were babies and infants, it was like they were learning new words by the second, or you could see them with a new physical skill so fast. Or, you know, I look at my daughter when she, you know, bangs herself falling or something and she, she healed. It's like I can watch her skin you know, just knit itself back together. They're, they're extraordinary. They're developing and they should be at this breakneck pace. We, th there can be a developmental delay that's driven by um, epigenetics when abuse is there or when there's a lack of affection or insufficient nourishment. So we can see a delay. But then, you know, as kids get older and they adopt some of the bad habits that, you know, the, the Western lifestyle uh, can uh, usher in, we can see a phenomena that looks more pro-aging in a negative way. So then what are some things that we can be doing, daily swaps, to turn all of this around, to age in, in a better way for our children and for ourselves? I would argue that we all, that we want to be eating for our genes at any age. It doesn't have to be huge uh, sweeping changes. And a lot of this is intuitive. So processed foods, not surprisingly, you know, high carbohydrate, sugar rich foods aren't healthy on gene expression at all. We want a whole foods diet. We want it to be vegetable centric. Fruits are in there, but we don't want high sugar fruits, lots of those dark berries. The polyphenols, the colorful aspects of fruits and veggies are so essential for good gene expression. But we also want nutrients, um, we call them methyl donors. So the polyphenols sort of direct what's happening on gene expression. And then we want the ingredients of good gene expression that come from foods like uh, again, greens, nuts and seeds, eggs are really important, beets. Um, and if folks are open to it, a little bit of liver. In our study, we prescribed three servings of liver per week. Uh, and I know some people will balk at that, but liver is a rich, important multivitamin in a food matrix. So if you could bullet point the things we should be doing and the things we should be avoiding... What would that takeaway be? Whole foods diet, avoid processed foods. So eat a whole foods diet, avoid processed foods. Do some exercise most days of the week. Avoid being sedentary. Avoid over-exercising. Take a minute to de-stress. 
whatever that looks like for you. Don't allow the stress experience to dominate and overwhelm you all of the time. Step out of that. Sleep. (laughs) Sleep is essential for healthy epigenetic expression. Pay attention to what you need to do to get a good night's sleep. I outline all of the hacks that I've used to ensure that I get a good night's sleep most nights. Doctor, listening to you make this list, these are things that most of us know we should be doing. Why do you think we don't? Well, you know, I think that we... I think that, that, that the whole agribusiness, I mean, I think our, our culture shifted, you know, a, a long time ago towards a modernization um, that's antithetical to health. Like we moved away from eating this way. I mean, we certainly evolved eating this way and being this way, sleeping, exercising, movement was a part of life. Uh, and as we entered into the so-called modern era, um, we just omitted a lot of these foundational practices uh, from our lives. I think, you know, industry has certainly stepped in to make a lot of money off us, make a lot of money off of prepared foods, um, you know, foods of lesser quality. Uh, I think it's just, I think it's multifactorial. You know, and certainly in medicine, being a physician, uh, we didn't appreciate the level of the importance of nutrition. You know, modern medicine really kicked nutrition to the curb, kicked diet to the curb uh, for the sake of, you know, drugs and procedures, et cetera. Uh, we're now obviously realizing that that was, you know, a deep error that we're going to be paying for for a long time. And we, and we really need to turn the paradigm back to, you know, an earlier time. There's so much talk these days about boosting immunity, and everything you're teaching is what should be shouted from all of the rooftops. Yeah, that's right. All of these interventions will help us uh, optimize our, our immune response, without question. The book is Younger You, Reverse Your Bio-Age, and Live Longer Better. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Fitzgerald and her work, you can visit Dr. CaraFitzgerald.com. That's D-R, DrCaraFitzgerald.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? We can get younger, and it's really our responsibility to engage in it. So let's get younger together. Amen. I'm on board with you. Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be with you. As adults, we tend to lose perspective on failure. We forget how many times as children we failed to tie our shoes before we succeeded. We forget how many times we fell before we learned to walk, skate, ski, or ride a bike. When you stop failing, you stop learning, and then you stop growing. If you struggle with fear of failure, examine the root cause of your struggle. Is there an issue of pride? Are you afraid of what others might think if you fail? Were you criticized as a child when you made mistakes that as an adult, you're afraid to take risks? Understanding the source of your fear will help you overcome it. Fear of rejection and fear of criticism detour many of us from our journeys to success. Rather than face possible rejection, some people simply don't ask for what they need. Rather than face possible criticism, they conceal their true abilities and never display their full potential. Every successful salesperson must ask for the order. Every successful business owner has to secure financing. In order to attain our dreams and goals, no matter what they are, we must invariably ask others for their support, participation, assistance, or commitment. And every time we ask, we face the possibility of rejection. If you struggle with the fear of rejection, examine its source. Knock at the door. You never know what's on the other side to success. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit star1professional.com. Is your immune system as strong as you would like it to be? Did you ever question if there is something else you can do to build a stronger immune system besides eating right, exercising, and getting plenty of rest? Energy work, such as Reiki, has been proven to help with reducing stress. We know that stress contributes to inflammation within our bodies, which can eventually wreak havoc on our immune system, potentially creating a host of critical health disorders. 
The purpose of Reiki is to cleanse, balance, and heal the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual bodies. Most of us pay attention to only our physical bodies. If we experience any adverse effects within our physical body, it normally would raise a red flag and we would seek out medical help. On the other hand, most of us are unaware of how much our mental and emotional bodies contribute to the health of our immune system. For instance, did you ever consider that unresolved anger over long periods of time can cause an unhealthy response in our liver? Our energetic systems must be in balance in order to create a harmonious vibration, which then contributes to the overall health of our immune system. Why not consider monthly Reiki sessions for yourself and begin working on your immune system? Hi, this is Roxanne. San D'Angelo, a certified Reiki master. If you would like more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.